What is it about French cheeses that make them so special, do you think? They have a fascinating history. Uh, they're, very, there's a, they're, they're very diverse. Um, so there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of French cheeses. I mean, there's, there's, we talk about 380 that de Gaulle mentioned, but there's more than that. Enchanté. Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that brings you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food here in France or around the world. They cook it, produce it, talk right and photograph it. But above all, they love it. Last week, we chatted to an Australian food icon, Will Studd, and learned all about his life in the UK, setting up a successful deli and cheese business there, and then packing it all in to move to Australia. Will talked about cheese in Australia, raw milk cheese, and his fantastic CV series, Cheese Slices, which to this day is watched all around the world and has a new series coming out soon, we hope. Today on Fabulously Delicious, it's part two of my conversation with Will, and here we focus on French cheeses, France and the French people, and also the cheese that made Will start his TV journey, Rockfall. So sit back, grab a glass of wine, a baguette, and some cheese, and let's get back to our conversation with Mr. Fromage himself, Will Studd. France is known for cheeses, really, of course, along with wine, its chateaus, Paris, the Côte d'Azur, even. The list goes on and on. What's your favourite thing, apart from cheese, about France? The countryside. France is, is, has the most beautiful countryside and it's empty. It, it really is. And I think, I think if you look at the statistics, its population per square kilometre is some of the lowest in Europe. It's got amazing agricultural and beautiful mountains, the wineries. Of course, I'm not allowed to talk about the C word, but no, the countryside. And beautiful, beautiful rivers. Uh, and, and it's got, you know, you go to the north and get wet and it's misty and you go to the south and get sunburned. It's um, you know, a pretty amazing country. It's, uh, yeah, and I yeah, love travelling through France and the countryside. So, Why do you think that so many of us uh, expats, so people from around the world, fall in love with France? Uh, because it's, uh, France has managed to maintain its culture somehow, and a lot of people argue that it's that, it, that it's not the same as it was. But essentially, it, it's very proud of its culture. I mean, when we talk about France, we talk about the French being very French. Um, we don't we don't talk about Australians being very Australians. Um, and when we think about the French being French, we tend to think about it. You know, we tend to feel it sort of genteel, nice, sophisticated. Um, whereas where we, if you think about talking about uh, Australians playing Australians, we don't feel quite the same way about it. It's, uh, you know, don't have quite, or, or the British, you know, we don't think about the British being sophisticated. Oh, France is, it, it, it's got culture. It's, it's, it, it's it, sure, there's plenty of examples of no culture, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, the, the image is there and a lot of the time it's there and, um, you know, and, and then there's Paris and there's France, but as long as you understand that, and they're two different places, that's uh, that, that there is there is this culture, and and and, and people are very generally speaking, very very um, nice and kind, and you know, it's not it's, it's not it's, there's always exceptions, of course, but uh, yeah. Have you ever lived here? Uh, no, but I've spent a lot of time there. Um, and, and with filming, etc. It's funny. I talk about my lousy French, and we were talking about yours, your 
lessons. I'd love to talk to you about that separately. But the interesting thing about speaking French is you know that you're starting to improve when you start dreaming and thinking French. Yes. <laughs> and, and you should probably do now, but it's – I remember – uh, a couple of times when I've been in France for three, three, four, five, six weeks filming and working there, and then going to England and sitting on the, you know, arriving in England and getting onto the tube and hearing English voices and going, they're not speaking French. What's wrong? It's like, I don't, I have to think, I have to like switch and change my brain working. And I, 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 it's a great feeling. I, it, I'd love to spend more time there. We touched on this on the last episode, but what is it about French cheeses that make them so special? Do you think they have? Well, they have a fa- they have a fascinating history. Uh, they're very there's a they're, they're very diverse. Um, so there's, there's a lot of lot of French cheeses. I mean, there's, there's, we talk about three hundred and eighty that de Gaulle mentioned, but there's more than that. Uh, they have a fascinating history um, that and and they're 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 linked to place. So every every notable cheese in France has a story, and that story—the more you you look for it, it's it's quite fascinating. It's um, I find it fascinating anyway. I'm not sure everyone does, but in my by living in Australia and trying to explain uh, the the stories, it, it's 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 I find it's been fascinating. I mean, I, I think that probably if you talk to most people about uh, say take let's take a national treasure like Camembert, um, you, you will hear the story about how a priest who worked in the Brie region um, escaped um, during the French Revolution and, and was running to England and stopped over at a farmhouse in, in the village of Camembert. And because he'd worked in the Brie region, he showed this farmer's wife, Marie Harrell, how to turn a really stodgy sort of like washed rind cheese um, how to put a mold, grow a mold on the outside of it, and so miraculously, um, Camembert was created. That's a good story, but but everyone knows that. Well, anyone, every most people know that. But what people it gets it gets much more complicated than that because yes, the the typical cheeses of Normandy were washed rind cheeses. They date back to the monks who arrived from probably from Ireland in the ninth century and started making those cheeses and washing them and washed rind cheeses like Pont Levesque and Livro. And, 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 and Camembert certainly was sold in the Vimoutier, um, you know, sometime around the early 1800s. But Camembert doesn't start to make a name for itself until, this is the bit you don't read about, until the 1850s when railways went um, were opened up to Normandy, and suddenly the Normans could compete with the with the with with the reproducers by sending cheese on a, on a train. Until then, we talked earlier in, a, in the other episode about transport. Without a train, you can't get cheese from Normandy, soft cheese from Normandy to Paris in time, particularly in the middle of summer. Um, and and you've got to remember, in the eighteen fifties, soft cheese was primarily carted around between layers of straw. The, the, the burgers of the, the cheesemakers of Brie, they would collect the, the cheeses from the farms. The, the different sizes would depend on how many cows the farm had. So, you know, Brie Nangis would be a one kilo cheese. Columier would be a much smaller cheese because they came from smaller farms and Brie de Mo was the big cheese. And they would be, they would be uh, carted around to, to, to brick sellers in the Brie, to Brie region 
and, and, and the, the affineurs in those regions would ripen the cheese after collecting them from the farms and then take them to the Paris market um, between layers of straw on the back of a, a horse and cart, which I hate to think what it was like in summer, but, you know, yeah. so, that's, how, that's how cheese was transported. So 1850s, long come railways and Normandy, and Normandy suddenly could send cheese to, to Paris. And, and Camembert makes a miraculous um, appearance around 1865 when Napoleon um, visits the region to open the railway and someone presents him with the cheese and it's named Camembert. And, and that, so that story, that's the story. But really Camembert doesn't make a name for itself in the, in the Paris markets until something much more important happens in the 1890s, which is when um, the, uh, the, the village of Livero um, has got this um, box makers that's making these poplar wooden box for the for chemists to to keep um, to keep pills in, and someone comes up with the bright, bright idea of putting cheese into it, and 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 so the brie producers are still chucking taking their cheese to the market in Paris between layers of straw, and the Normans come up with this idea of putting their cheese in a box, and that box has it becomes really important because when they pop it on the train. It's still maturing. It's not refrigerated. And so that's one thing. But it also means when it gets to the Paris market for the, for the housewife in the Paris market or whoever's buying the cheese, it's a very convenient, it's, ma- it's a mass-produced, you know, it's a very convenient cheese to just pick up and take home. You don't have to get it cut from layers of straw. It's not going to drip everywhere. It's in a box. And even more importantly, the box has got a brand. You know, I mean, it's... It's, it's Normandy Camembert. It's got, and then, 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 then you can see if you look at through the labels of Normandy Camembert. There's lots of fun and games about over the years of what Normandy Camembert has been called. But essentially, you know that that suddenly this cheese becomes mass market cheese. So, so that's the background. But it gets more fascinating where after the First World War, um, the the, uh, the, the, the the there was a German doctor goes to the Camembert region and discovers that raw milk Camembert is really good for your gut. And, and, and at the same time, you have the, um, the French trying to rebuild the country and they're looking for uh, symbols like a Joan of Arc. So they, they take the story of Marie Harel and they turn it into a national symbol of this woman cheesemaker who creates this national cheese, Camembert, which everyone understands. And, and, and so they build this image, this story of Marie Harel around Camembert. So it's part of a um, French government sort of PR game. So, so all, those, all, all those things, when, when you start putting them together, you know, that's Camembert. It's a national treasure. But it's it's got a story, and I could I could keep going about Comte and whatever. I love going into those stories and, and digging around and coming from so far away gives you, and particularly with a with a, with a, with a camera crew, gives me such opportunity to go in and discover stuff that people never think about. Why? 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 I love it. That's a it's fascinating. Or oh, you take you, one of the most popular cheeses we sell in. Australia is Briat Savran, okay, and, and it's my I'm addicted to that. So we buy a, a, a cut every week. Okay, well, so so Briat Savran's an interesting one. It's 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 a lactic curd cheese, 
And you'll read all sorts of stories about how it was invented in the 1890s and it was called Excelsior or it was called something else and maybe it was created in, in Normandy, maybe it was created in, 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 uh, in Bourgogne. Nobody's really sure, but what, what's pretty clear is that uh, Andre's father took the cheese and named it Briat Savran after the, fam- the famous um, gastronomer, who incidentally was sort of all about I didn't realise this till the other day, it was all about um, not eating cereals. So basically yeah, it was high protein. I didn't know that. Anyway, the, the fascinating thing about Briat Savran is it's a lactic curd cheese and it, it doesn't fit with anything made in Normandy. All the cheeses bar Neuf Chatel in Normandy are rennet. They're rennet-driven cheeses. So it's and, and but it's only when you so when you get to the Brie to the Brie region, there's there's um the, there's there's the Brie de Meaux, okay, and Brie de Milan, and they're they're different. Brie de Milan is uh, is a lactic set cheese. It's not a rennet set cheese, and Brie de Meaux is a, is so that's why they they're different. Brie de Milan is much more stodgy. Um, Jeez, there's not many producers of Brie de Milan these days, but that technique is also you find in Epoise. So it's a lactic curd. So once you so if you sort of head from Brie down to, from 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 uh, the Brie region down towards Lyon, you start to see these lactic set ch- cheeses. And so one of the one of the classics is Chaos. Now you know Chaos. Think about the shape of Chaos, and just think about the shape of Briat Savaran. And you go, hang on, they're both lactic set, set cheeses. What's the difference? Chaos is, oh, hang on, Chaos is low fat and Briat Savarin is high fat. Is that the only difference? Well, pretty much. And, and you know, they're the same shape. Nobody knows ever, people don't link those two together. I mean, Chaos is a tough cheese and most of what you see in the, is around is industrial. I'm very lucky to have actually seen farmhouse Chaos and it's a whole different story. It's fantastic. It's got a wonderful geo rind on raw milk shales is fantastic but it's, i think there's only two or three farms make it and it's pretty rare and it's difficult to handle but but uh yeah there's, there's, i'm not saying that that's the origin of briette savaran but to me they look remarkably the same they're the same make technique and they came from come from the same area it's a bit like you know it's a bit, bit of a coincidence <laughs> if they're not <laughs> So, so Comte, I mean, you know, Comte really doesn't start to become a, a cheese and any difference until after the Second World War. You'll read how Swiss cheesemakers crossed the border into France and started making uh, a Gruyere-style cheese across the border because they were encouraged to do this through um, subsidies, etc. It's sort of part of the Second World after the Second World War, trying to reconstruct France. But Comte, when I started in the cheese industry, wasn't anything special. It really wasn't. It, it was. I mean, it wasn't wasn't what it is today. It was. Uh, it was a version. Everyone everyone would have preferred to have um, Swiss Gruyere, and and the, the the main difference between Comte and Gruyere is the way the cheese is salted. So Comte is salted. Uh, they're both made up mountains. They're both made, made in fruitier dairies. They're both made from raw milk. The main difference is that Gruyere is salted in a brine bath, and most Comte is salted by hand with, with salt across the top. And the salt across the top takes much longer longer to get into the cheese. So Comte essentially is around 40% less salty than Gruyere. 
That's number one difference. And the, se the, second, the second difference is that in, in, in 40, 50 years ago, Comte was matured just the same way as Gruyere. And the Swiss came up with this fast maturation process where they would take their Gruyere and they would, they would put it in a warm room, just, just not too warm, but warm room, uh, so around 12 degrees, so the cheese would mature really quickly and they would sell it at, at, at six months old. It's good, good business if you can get it. So it would be sweet, it would be salty, ticked all the boxes. Creamy, you know, it's like intense. It used to have big fissures in and little angels' tears and stuff in those days, which are always interesting. But it was, it was, it was that Swiss Gruyere. Whereas Comte, the, the cheesemakers in France did the same thing, but because it wasn't salty, it didn't, it didn't mature the same way. It was really bland and boring. Comte only starts to get interesting in the last 20, 25 years when a bloke called Marcel Petit. Has ends up with too much Comte and decides to store it in the Fort Saint Antoine at two and a half thousand meters, where it's cold enough to just leave the cheese at a cold temperature, and it doesn't. And it's still good after twelve months, eighteen months. And guess what? It after when you start maturing Comte out beyond nine months, it starts to get really, really good, really interesting. What's the point anyway? And and so this fort, quite quite by chance, suddenly you have Comte starts adopting the technique of of, of maturation similar to Beaufort, and, and 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 junks the Swiss system of maturation, and and uh, that that idea of using the fort was copied uh, by Fort de Rousse, and these days Comte producers now run their 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 cold rooms at a much lower temperature and try and keep the cheese for much much longer. Yeah, one of the sad things about Comte, and it's the same with Parmigiano, etc., and it, but we all do it, it's, is that the, there is a point where cheese gets too old. It's like wine. And, and, and I, I respectfully would argue that Comte, anything over two years, and probably the same with Parmigiano Reggiano, is screwed. It's old pharaoh. It, it, unless you get it straight out of the fridge and eat it straight away, it's, it's gone because the rind has got that really musty, musty, flavour to it and all the sweetness, all the life's been sucked out of it by, by age. I, 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 I'd encourage you to be get out there and look at anything from 12 to 18 months because um, the, other thing, the other thing about Comte is, is every depending on which time of year it's made and when it's made and how it's matured, every, every, every batch is different. So generally speaking, winter cheeses tend to taste more interesting than summer cheeses, which is contrary to what you would expect. We talk about summer when the cows are out frolicking through the mountains, picking whatever they want to eat, as thinking it's the best time of year. But the difference is in, in winter, uh, the cows are on a very controlled diet, and that means the milk is much more consistent and it produces a cheese that will mature more quickly and have uh, some a very consistent um, and, and interesting flavour compared to summer cheeses, which sometimes can be fabulous, but sometimes can be absolutely awful. And then the other thing about Comte is to understand that where a Comte is produced and where it is matured is also really important. So a lot of Comte is produced lower down the mountains in the valleys, and that's generally sold very, very young, whereas the best Comte is produced over 9,000 metres. 900 meters, 900 meters, I should say. So, the, so the best Comte is about 900 meters, and 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 
So that's what you, trying to find that out when you buy your Comte is important and, and always taste it because often I, I love a Comte that is sweet and savoury. I don't want just savoury. I want sweet and savoury. I love Gruyere, but it's too sweet. I love Comte, but I don't want it to be super super savoury. I want something in between. And and that's what we I really look for in a Comte. And generally speaking, I find it somewhere between 13 and 18 months. I, I would say after that, it's tough. And if you talk to, I mean, the best people to talk to are the producers, of course, and find out what they like and then claim it as your own. I live in the poitou Charente region, which is known for its goat's cheese. You know, you've talked about Camembert, we've talked about Comte. Is this specific to France that these regions have these cheeses? Uh, uh, no, other countries have got the same thing. There just seems to be more in France. The Italians have probably got more cheese, but it's not they're not so well known, and I certainly don't know them, whereas the French cheeses are, are much better known. And you live in a region, do you know, you talked about Camembert, do you know the link between... Um, Normandy and Poitou-Charent? No. What's the link? So in the 1890s, okay, the, uh, they had Floxa down there. Well, there's a, there's a few things. First of all, if you watch the first episode of Cheese Slices Ever Made, there's Will Studd standing in a field talking about, I can't remember his name, but Simon Somerdo is an Englishman who in, encouraged the, the French to form... Um, to, to form as a country after and push the Saracens out of the country. Um, and it was an English guy, Simon something, I can't remember his name. Anyway, he was he he was responsible for for, for pulling the whole for, for making France into a nation in the first place. And interesting. But uh, let's go back to Poitou Charon. Um, the uh, so 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 Charlemagne, he put Charlemagne on the throne. So yeah. Um, and, and, and the, 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 the Holy Roman Emperor and all the rest of it. Anyway, the um, the so that's one thing that Charente's famous for because it's the foundation of the French of France as a country. But more importantly, in the eighteen nineties, perhaps the uh, the phylloxera destroyed the wine growers of the region. And in those days, if you wanted to grow wine, you had to wait seven years before you planted new vines. So to try and get by. They invited um, that. Well, they didn't invite. They they bought a load of Normandy cows down to the region and started making started making butter. And and so the butter that comes from your region tends to be very different from Normandy butter, okay? But it's it's much shorter. But the cat and the cows don't get to eat so much grass because there ain't so much grass down there. It's not very green. Not very green at all if you think about it. So they're supplementary fed, but it became the foundation for the, the famous butter that's produced there, which actually was the first um, AOP butter in France, long before Normandy had its own butter. It's only later that these finder Signy butter gets its AOP. And the butter that's used by all the pastry chefs or good pastry chefs all around the, uh, France we use. Yeah, well, there's a little trick to that. So there's a couple of reasons for that. One, it's very white because the cows don't get to eat grass. Two... Um, it's uh, it, 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 it's um, it's very short, so it, it, it makes great pastry. And of course, pastry butter is frozen, so it's, it concentrates the fats. So they, they, the, the butter sheet is frozen and then defrosted. So it makes it fabulous for um, croissant and pastry. 
Um, if you try Normandy butter, Berta Barat butter against the the butter from, from Pointe du Chiron, it's quite an interesting combination. They're, they're so different. Normandy butter is much fatter. Um, fantastic for beurre blanc and for sauces and for other types of cooking. Um, and uh, there's a there's a cheese slices on butter, and there was a revelation to go to the different places. Really was um, for me. And the funny the funny thing that came out of it is I started. I loved uh, the butter from the Chiron originally, and as a result of doing this program, I came away as a fan of Normandy butter. It's quite—I don't know—it was, it was like thirty years of of thinking went out the window, and I've become a super fan of Berta Brat. So the French, uh, oh my gosh, they love cheese. The local supermarkets, there'll be literally aisles of cheese. And I'm not just saying like half an aisle or one aisle. It would be like, you know, sometimes it can be two aisles of cheese. They must be the biggest eaters of cheese in the world, are they? No, no, no. From uh, Greece's. Greece's. Greece. Yeah. Yeah. We're way in front. I can't, I can't tell you how much, but it's way in front. But the French, the French are. Um, and, and But I think as a visitor, you probably uh, see it slightly different to a lot of French, if that makes sense. I think, I think I'm not sure that the consumption is growing very much, particularly of traditional cheese. And, in fact, there's a move in France, sad move in France, where they've just banned uh, any school children under the age of five from eating raw milk cheese. There was a, there was, there was a problem. You know, that's, that's a pretty dreadful thing to do. And there's, there's, there's this sort of... I love walking into a French supermarket and looking at the cheese. I have to admit it. I go through it. I love the innovation and the differences, and and and, and the even the industrial cheese is interesting. Um, and 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 it's, there's always good ideas and, and fabulous. It, it's 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 like a kid in a, t- in a in a toy shop or sweetie shop. You know, it's like going going to the sweetie jar. What am I going to get today? Um, and but there's um, increasingly you see in France the industrial producers are uh, taking over, and the artisan producers are struggling. That's uh, possibly all over the world um, happening. Oh, I think uh, it is. I think it is all over the world. Yeah, and, and yeah, definitely. Uh, and you're lucky to live in a region with goat cheese because goats are much easier to keep than than, than cows because they're smaller and they breed more easily. So you will have more artisan goat producers down there. If I was coming to France for the first time and wanted to source something that I'd only find in France, cheese-wise, what should I look for? Where should I go? You can go anywhere and you'll find something different. <laughs> that's, not, that's, not, that's not a fair question because you can go anywhere and you'll find something different. Before we get into Rockford, I wanted to briefly talk about your kids because they're pretty fabulous in their own right. You must be very proud of them. Two are in cheese and one is in coffee. Yeah, yeah. So Fleur, my eldest, our eldest daughter, um, is in coffee. She has Market Lane Coffee and she's, she's, she, she is pure as driven snow, of course, because she's my daughter, but she's, she's, she's our daughter, but she... She is. She has done so well with the coffee, and she's. She works so hard sourcing it and 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 finding the the right coffee. And it, that is all about terroir too. I, ironically, it, it probably reflects terroir even more than the cheese these days, in the sense that she'll go out and find individual um, farms, and and she'll she'll pick their coffee, and she'll identify it, and she'll pick what what flavors are there, and she'll roast it very gently to ensure that it. Uh, reflects its its taste of place, and and 
and and and she will max it and, and every yeah so she does that with the coffee and then of course if you have the milk she'll make sure that the milk is single farm you know it's 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 really really and and she won't she 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 does basically coffee nothing else you know it's not a cafe that sells bacon and eggs and breakfast and everything else with a bit of coffee on the side it's coffee 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 your son and your other daughter are in cheese yes the the the, the other two kids Ellie and Sam uh, they, they 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 chose to go into cheese. It was never my choice for them to go into cheese. I probably wouldn't even be having this conversation with you if been you know if they hadn't. Um, about Ellie worked uh, at Royal Children's Hospital. She she was fabulous um, there, and I think. But after ten years, she just found it too much. And Sam had worked in been travelled around the world and worked in New York, and um, you know was brilliant at cocktails and goodness knows and, and, and the hospitality industry he worked with coffee anyway both of them came to the conclusion that they'd love to work with cheese and they really run their own show i don't have much to do with it we've we've been lucky to travel together and and do some filming together and obviously i've introduced them to uh a lot of, of cheese makers and one of the funny things about we have a range of selected wool stud selected cheeses and they tend to come from family companies too so, so uh, we've, I've introduced them to those families in the hope that uh, that, that 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 connection will continue. Um, and and so Sam and and and, that, and Sam and Ellie have both done the, the courses in the states. They're fully accredited professionals, and they they know a lot about cheese. It's um extraordinary. And and what's nice, Andrew, is that they communicate about cheese in, in a different way to I do. It, it, it's. It's obviously another generation, a different way of communicating, and I think that's really, really important. Um, to, to, you know, I tend to be old school cheese these days. <laughs> I might have been in Rebel forty years ago. Hard to stay up there forever. Whereas, um, you know, they talk about cheese in a different way. They ask different questions, and they've got inquisitive minds, and they're always looking for something different, asking the right questions. You're listening to Fabulous and Delicious, the podcast that's all about French food and the wonderful and fabulous people that make it. If you'd like to support the making of Fabulously Delicious, then there are many ways that you can do this. The first, possibly the most important, is to follow wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave a review and a rating. A five-star one, well, that would be fabulous, especially if you're listening on Apple or Spotify. Share Fabulously Delicious around with your friends, family, co-workers or anyone that you know loves French food or just food in general. Are you a Patreon member? Well, if you can support Fabulously Delicious by becoming one, for as little as the price of a cup of coffee a month, you will receive exclusive grade content just for you. You can find out more through the link in the show notes of this episode. Thanks for listening to Fabulously Delicious, and now let's get back to our chat with the wonderful Will Stud as we find out all about the cheese that Will is most associated with, Roquefort. Getting on to Rockford, you're famous a little bit in Australia because of the Rockford case. But can you explain to us? So Rockford is a region, is that right? In France? Oh no! So so Rockford is a cheese. It's a, it's a, it, it's, it it comes from the village of Rockford. Well, actually, the cheese. To be more precise, the cheese is matured in the caves of Rockford, and and the the which which sit in the village of Rockford. So. Uh, traditionally, Rockfall was made by little farms all around the region, and 
taken to the caves of Roquefort. You've got to remember this is pre-refrigeration days and matured in the caves, which were cool. And they were cool because they have these special vents that come down from a plateau and it keeps them nice and cool and damp all of the time. And, 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 that, and that, yeah, you'll, you'll hear the story about Roquefort and how it was, you know, it was discovered one day that a shepherd was sitting eating his lunch of fresh goat, fresh sheep milk cheese and on a piece of bread and, you know, he spied either a wolf or a young lady or something. A young lady, that, I heard that, yes. Whatever. Anyway, whatever. <laughs> he was distracted from eating his lunch and left it in the cave and went looking for it a couple of weeks later or tripped over it a couple of weeks later and discovered it had gone blue and so the caves of Rockfall were discovered because they had all these wonderful blue moulds, in which they do. They, in fact, have every single blue cheese on the planet is made with Rockfordy mould. Right. Every single one starts with Rockfall. There are there are 400 and, well, there's over 400 strains of Rockfall, and how you mix those up and turn them into Rockfall, you, you, I don't know, I'm not a mathematician, but you can imagine 400 by all those different multiples turns into hundreds of thousands of different varieties of strains of mould you can use to make blue cheese. And everyone tastes a little bit, everyone tastes a little bit different. And the traditional way of, 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 of growing those moulds was to put bread into the caves, rye bread. You can't just use any more bread because it goes psychotropic. Um, and it, rye bread would be put into the caves with little holes in it and the, the mould would grow into the bread and then the bread would be, and once it was fully mouldy, would be um, taken out and crumbled into the curds of the cheese. And that way they would introduce the blue mould. And um, after the cheese was salted, someone would come along and put spikes in it and and um, the mould would wake up and the cheese would be transported to the caves where it would be kept cold. The cheese only spends maybe between 12 and 25 days in the caves, that's all. And then it and then it's carted off to a cool area, um, and and held for ninety days before it's allowed out. It's, it's a it's it's Rockford's a fascinating product. It's the oldest um, raw milk uh, blue cheese in France. It's it's got, certainly got a documented history back to the twelfth century, but it probably dates back a lot longer than that. If you think about it, actually, if you close your eyes and think about it, it's a bit like a blue feta. Shouldn't say that in the same sentence, but anyway, um, <laughs> salty and it's blue and and it's like yeah and uh, and 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 I wonder what would happen if you put feta into the caves of Rockport. Anyway, the um, the uh, so it's the oldest and and it is the most popular raw milk blue cheese in France. And until Australia decided to ban it, it was um, it's been freely sold all over the world. Australia's and, and when Australia decided to ban it as part of this trade embargo on the idea of um, using uh, geographical indicator names, a, a debate that's still going today, um, you, 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 the French were really worried that it, that, it, that it would set a precedent that would block them out of the American market. Right. Okay, so... Just going on to that, I didn't know a lot about it. I always thought that the reason why it wasn't allowed in Australia was because of being a mouldy cheese, but this wasn't correct. Well, no. So Australia in the so Australia in the it formed the National Food Authority and banned the production and sale of all all raw milk cheese after 
after the um, the Uruguay round of trade uh, in in 1996, uh, because because the Europeans announced they wanted to register the names of um, geographical names of cheese. And the Americans and the Australians lodged an appeal to the WTO going, no, that's not fair. We won't be able to make Parmesan anymore. We won't be able to make Brie. We won't be able to make Camembert. You know, our industrial producers have been doing all this copy cheese for the last, well, in Australia, 100 years and a few bit longer than that in America. We, 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 we don't, we're not going to allow that to happen. And one of the ways we're going to stop that happening in our country is we're going to ban those cheeses. If you think about it, most most a lot of ge- cheeses geographical names are made from raw milk. What would have been happening then is that production cheese manufacturers were making their own version of a brie. Yeah, right. Yeah, they were from parts. Yeah, and they were worried that they would lose the right to do it. So that as part of the trade embargo. Uh, they 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 lodged this appeal and 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 they changed the local laws for for the for the sale of raw milk and if you look at the American market at the same time in America there was a big move to try and ban the um the, the production of raw milk cheese in the states over there they have what they call the sixty day rule um, any cheese over sixty days can be made from raw milk and and that the, the FDA threatened to change all of that. So in the early 2000s, you have this big movement to try and ban um, the sale of raw milk cheese in America and Australia, and Australia becomes the test case. And what I didn't realise at the time, I mean, I was, I was just doing the Rockfall case because it, it had bigger implications than just Rockfall. I took on Rockfall because the French, as the, the, the Rockfall producers, could not create a united voice about applying to Australia for a special exemption like the Parmesan producers had done and like the Swiss had done. And the law in Australia said that cheese must be made from pasteurised milk or the equivalent in bacteria reduction. And my thing was, okay, so if you want to, um, te- to, to test what that means, test my Roquefort. See if it's got the equivalent bacteria reduction to pasteurised milk cheese and so i import and nobody could answer me what would happen if i imported this cheese um i said well you should test it to see that if it's equivalent i had it tested of course i'd had it tested before i brought in but uh, that was you know i'd prove it's equivalent i was trying to prove a point because it wasn't clear what the law meant i'll say that again it said that cheese must be made from pasteurized milk or the equivalent in bacteria reduction and my argument was, well, where do you, where, what point do you test the bacteria reduction? Surely at the end. Anyway, I imported 80 kilos of Rockfall because nobody could answer my question. Uh, I told the authorities I was going to do it. And when it arrived, it, was see- it arrived at Melbourne Airport and it was seized by the authorities. And I was told that they wouldn't test it. And I had to, and th- that the only options I had was to re-export it or destroy it by deep burial. And I refused. I said, no, test it. And, and the, the discussion went on about them testing it for um, about six months. During that time, I was threatened with jail or a $100,000 fine, because I, uh, mainly because I was bringing in, uh, you're allowed to, in Australia, you're allowed to bring in cheese for personal use, up to 10, well, you used to be able to, up for, um, raw milk cheese for personal use. 
So I was bringing cheese in for personal use and showing it off to the press about how you couldn't have Roquefort and how ridiculous it was because it was this classic cheese. And so the threat the, the threats for jail and $100,000 fines were really related to that. But you know, you've got to remember that I had 80 kilos of Roquefort sitting under 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 lock and key at the time. So they, they, there was a bigger threat implied. And it's funny till it's you, and it's not funny when it's you. I can tell you it's a bit like when, when your mates get done for speeding. It's funny, but when it's you, it's not. <laughs> um, and 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 uh, anyway. So what happened was um, I took the case to a court of appeal. Demanded they tested. It took eighteen months for that case to get to court. During that time, they changed the regulations for Parmesan and allowed it in. They created the special exemption for Swiss cheese. Um, and uh, and I, at the same time, I applied for all French cheese, to, raw milk cheese, to be allowed in under a special exemption. Anyway, uh, the outcome of the Court of Appeal was that I lost the case. So I, I put the cheese into the back of a hearse and drove it very um, and got it driven very slowly across the Westgate Bridge to the, the Brooklyn Tip. And it, it was a very wet day, so the the, the um, the hearse driver wasn't very impressed about driving his hearse across this very muddy tip full of seagulls and, and whatever. Yep. We jumped out, we met the quarantine officer there and proceeded to bury the cheese with um, with a few television cameras along, which is probably where the slices started. And that sh- that that uh, show was went to the ABC at 7.30, was picked up by the French media, the French were very worried that, as I say, that it would have implications for the, the set of precedent for the US market and um, and the Australians looked pretty stupid um, and, in banning Rockfall for whatever reason. And they, so as a result of that, the Australian and French government sat down and spent probably a couple of million dollars. I know seven quarantine officers went over to France and spent two weeks in Rockfall doing God knows what and came back and signed and, and produced this paper, which wasn't actually accurate, um, to say that Rockfall was safe for Australian consumption. And that was, that was a big move because it, it, it suddenly created an exemption for a raw milk cheese, um, which, was, which was very important. It had big implications in the States. It had big implications for the whole push by Australia and America to try and ban GIs. Suddenly the whole case started to collapse. So it became an unofficial test case of something much bigger than I ever intended it to be. It's only years later I can look back at what was going on. And and Rockfall was finally allowed to be sold in Australia in 2007. Meanwhile, the other applications I'd made for all European cheese, I was asked to hold off whilst the, whilst the authorities looked into what was needed in Australia to allow the production of raw milk cheese, and it was 10 years later that they finally came up with a, a plan uh, which allowed, well, more impo- most importantly, it didn't allow the production of blue cheese like Roquefort, didn't allow the production of soft surface ripened cheese. What it did allow was hard-cooked curd cheeses like Comte, Gruyere, and the Parmesan and all the cheeses they'd pr- previously give, given an exemption. And the irony of all this is that, uh, is that as a result of that, they removed all special exemptions from the Food Standards Code in 2015 
and announced that the only way uh, imported cheeses could be uh, raw milk cheeses could be sold in Australia was if they were made according to Australian standards. And to this day, Roquefort has never been assessed under Australian standards. So you can't make a Roquefort-style cheese in Australia. You can't you can't take can't make a blue cheese from raw milk in Australia, but you can import it, and that is open to test. Watch this space. Well, it gets better. So meanwhile, Australia has been negotiating with bar a few submarine issues for a free. <laughs> yes, I was wondering if that was going to come up. <laughs> uh, Meanwhile, Australia has been negotiating with the EU for a trip free trade agreement and with Britain for a separate free trade agreement. And part of that agreement is that uh, cheese is a high priority. And guess what? You watch, I will predict now that Australia will roll over on the allowing imported raw milk cheeses into Australia on condition that we get similar rights to send product to, to Europe. So this whole idea that it's all about food safety and we can't do it, etc. You just gotta say, no, this is really just a game about trade. And if you if you work out who wins on trade, well, Australia's third largest exporter of commodity products in the world. It's the people who are pulling the strings of the puppets in Canberra are the big the guys that own those big, big industrial producers. It's not not about artisan cheese at all. Can you cook with Roquefort? And if so, what can you make? Andrew, can you cook with Roquefort? It's probably the best thing you can do with it. As a cheese by itself, it's really tough going, but you cook with it. My God, have you never tried it? It's fabulous with shellfish. Can I confess, Will? I've never eaten Roquefort cheese. Oh, my God. Okay, well, you've got a lot of of learning. Can you answer me a question? Is there penicillin in blue cheese? It's called Penicillium Rockforti, but that's not an excuse. Don't worry about that. Because I'm allergic to penicillin. But no, you, that's not, not going to hurt you at all. Are you okay. sure? Yes, 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 of course. Now, the secret of it enjoying Rockfort is to cook with it. That's number one, okay? Now, it, and the other thing to understand, it's very high in fat, but it's very, very salty. It has to be salty because the Rockforti mould grows in salty conditions and you don't want other molds growing because they can do funny things to you okay so you want so you need salt so when you cook with it it's important to understand that you're dealing with fat and salt but it's the rock 40 the flavor of rock four is fabulous if you add butter or cream to it or well you 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 have seen a blue cheese dressing just chuck it in mayonnaise it's fantastic but if you really want to um cook with it uh just, just try putting on someone some steak after you've taken it off a barbecue, or, or, you know, or steak au poivre, and just, just, just melt it on. Or something I did do here in, in Australia is, is I, we get a lot of tuna up here in Barron, and you know when tuna, well, when tuna's in season, I just sear a tuna, and I might just um, once, once I've taken the, the, the tuna out of the pan, I might just drop in a little bit of roquefort and some sake, stir it around very gently and pour it over pour it over the tuna or you can try try a just a tiny little piece in a, in mussels and put it under the grill fabulous with shellfish or yeah, yeah, it's it's quite an extraordinary it's got umami plus there's more umami there's two cheeses on the planet that have loads and loads of umami Parm- parmigiano reggiano and roquefort 
I make a camembert ice cream. Should I make a Rockport ice cream? Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, just, just don't use too much. But I, but do try cooking with it first. I mean, I, I've got to say, I'm not a huge fan of, of, um, of, of Rockford ice cream. Some people are, but I, I'm sort of a bit of a conflicting things happening in there. But just try it on shellfish or, 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 or on steak. Fantastic. Well, it's market day today, so I will head off and get a good steak um, and uh, some Roquefort. And I will and li- and, yeah, and only a little bit of Roquefort. You don't need much. It's the most important thing. Just a tinge. Be, be very, very conservative with it. What's this about you being knighted by the French? Well, after what, what was really touching, uh, and I guess it probably sums up France too, is is after the Rockfall case, I was um, invited to become. Um, well, I was I was I was I was invited to become. Uh, I was given the order to merit agricole. So that is a pretty special honour for defending raw milk cheese and particularly for defending Rockfall. And then a few years later, I was made an officiate. Uh, there's not many of us in the club, and what I love about it is the French. That respect for, uh, for, for it was an honour, but it was also a mark of respect, and and that's that's nice. And I, I look at it and I compare it to how Australia's looked at it, and I go, well, there's very different ways of dealing with it. You know? <laughs> but the yeah, the the order order of merit is pretty special. So, yeah, that that is um, amazing. Yeah. So so thank you, France. Um, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Will Stud, thank you so much. You have entertained and educated us, not just here today on Fabulously Delicious, but just during your lifetime. I can't tell you how important cheese slices is to me as a, as a foodie and your career. Uh, you definitely brought cheese into my life and to, I'm sure, many people around the world's life. Um, thank you so much for joining me on Fabulously Delicious today. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Andrew. Enjoy your rock fall. I will. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.